forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh yeah! I'm so happy to talk to you all. What I'm going to do first is ask you all to introduce yourselves on the microphone, so the listener knows what you sound like. Tell us some places where we may have heard your voice or seen your name on our television screens before. Uh, and Ron, let's start with you. Uh, this is Ronald D. Moore. I'm currently uh, working on a show called For All Mankind, and uh, I started at Star Trek, and then I did the reboot of Battlestar Galactica and uh, Outlander. Thank you. Seagal. Um, I'm Seagal Avon. I'm uh, American-Israeli. I've been living in uh, Israel for the past... I, I've been back and forth. Uh, currently, Losing Alice is on... Uh, Apple TV Plus, which just started, the three episodes are on, and uh, I did a project called uh, Hashtag That's Harassment that you can see on YouTube, uh, which are six short films that depict sexual harassment, uh, which I did with um, uh, David Schwimmer and Mazak Razi, executive produced. We I did I did them in Israel first, and then did them in the States and they were in the New York taxi cabs and uh, among other places. I had some uh, remakes. Uh, I had the X list on CBS, which is a remake of a show I did in Israel. And here in Israel, I did a irreversible, which is a comedy that was two seasons. What happens to a couple after they have their first child? Great, thank you. And Lana. Hi, I'm Lana Cho. Um, I guess I've been staffed on a lot of shows because I tend to be on shows that only go one season. <laughs> so I started out of the Disney ABC Writing Fellowship in 2009 and have been fortunate enough to work steadily. And I guess my last, I guess the most recent stuff I've done is Timeless on NBC, Four Weddings and a Funeral on Hulu, and I just wrapped... I know what you did last summer for Amazon. So, well, thanks. Um, I want to start by asking what you are all working on right now. What is occupying your time? Um, and then I have some specific questions about how you're managing that time. Um, but Ron, let's go back to you and, and talk about what you're doing in this moment. Uh, well, currently, um, I'm doing a, a couple of things. Uh, we're uh, we've opened a writers' room for the third season of uh, For All Mankind, which is great. And then I just had a, signed a new deal at 20th Century uh, slash Disney, and I'm developing several projects for them at, at, uh, at the moment, including a, a Swiss Family Robinson, which is really fun and uh, should be a great, a great project. Um, um, that's great. And, and tell me about like juggling those projects and managing your days, working with the writer's room and also working on stuff uh, on your own for other people. Um. I don't know. Actually, you just kind of like, I depend on my assistant to help me like manage my time in all honesty. Uh, I, you know, the writer's rooms are always sort of take priority over just about everything else except actual writing. 
And um, you, you just sort of, you get to a certain point where you're doing more than one show and then you have to just kind of delegate responsibilities. You know, I don't, I don't directly show run either Outlander or uh, For All Mankind anymore. I handed those duties off to other writer producers who carry the ball very ably and, you know, do a great job on those. And then I can kind of just dial back, you know, what my uh, interaction is with each of those shows as I then go on to develop uh, something else. Because the first year of any show is really the the most intensive one. You're making all the key decisions on the show, everything from, you know, cast to tone to photography to editing and sound and music and all the key decisions that sort of inform what that show is going to be all happen in the first year. So that's really the, the one that takes the most focus uh, and the one I really have to concentrate on. So anything that's brand new really takes up the lion's share of my time. And then everything else has to kind of fit in and you have to walk away from certain things on other shows. Yeah. I walk away from casting and, you know, I walk away from table reads and, you know, you just kind of dial back and dial back and dial back until you're you know, like with Outlander, I'm, I essentially just kind of read, uh, some drafts. I give some general thoughts to the showrunner, Matt Roberts. And I still like to go into post and I still like to look at the cuts and get my hands on the cuts because that's really part of the process that I enjoy. But the rest of the production, I really don't have any in, any uh, interaction with. And Mankind, I, I have a little bit more uh, interaction because it's it's still a relatively new show. But um, you know, Swiss Family and other projects that I'm doing for Disney are really the things that, that are, are first and foremost uh, in terms of time management. Mm. It makes it makes a lot of sense, um, and I want to sort of pick up on that idea of like nurturing a first year show. You've all had those experiences, and Sigal, you're coming right out of that experience. Yeah. Um, it, it's your a bit, show. Tell me about about. No, it's a bit different here in Israel. Uh, we don't really have writing writers' rooms, um, so yeah, I wish we did. Like it's like it seems like when the X list was um, in CBS and I flew in and I saw the writer's room, I was like, Oh wow, this is so cool. And all the candy and all the, <laughs> and, <laughs> and all the, the treats and, and <laughs> little rooms and, and writers and, and people uh, together all day. And so here it's, it's a bit different. And I, um, I, I wrote uh, and most of the, a lot of the writers here, most of them kind of uh, write their shows on their own or maybe with another partner. Um, so it's a, it's like a different experience. We, and it's not really, it, maybe it's starting to be in a way because of all the um, pr productions kind of finding their, their ways to streaming companies and to the States. So maybe it'll become a little bit of an industry, but you know, the television until not long ago here wasn't, it's not really an industry. So there's, so there's not enough money for writer, writer's rooms. And there's also very few television stations. So it's not like in the States where they can kind of give you dates and there's deadlines. And so it's, so the things are much different. And uh, yeah. so it's tough. You sit in your room, you, you write on, on your own. And it's a, it's a different experience in that. So it's more like, I guess, writing that, a, a, a film. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it makes sense. Was that the uh, model for Losing Alice? Was it written in the Israeli, sort of the UK way? Yeah. I mean, um, Losing Alice was completely, um, I, I mean, 
it was different even even um, for because for for instance when I did the comedies uh, I had a co creator and I also kind of worked the classic way with arcs and a story B story and everything was kind of, and losing Alice uh, was written much more like a, like a movie or like a novel where I kind of had the freedom to kind of build these characters and let them, let, let me see where they take me. So it was, it was a very different kind of journey and experience. It was, it was pretty wild. It was like an alternative really, world at really a certain cool. point. Yeah, that's exciting, I imagine. It um, is. Lana, what are you working on right now? Um, I actually just turned in my feature to Netflix. And so I think this is the draft where they'd have to make a decision on whether they're going <laughs> to make it or not. So Cro- fingers crossing down. fingers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have a pilot with, I guess, they're now 20th. It used to be Fox 21. I'm kind of a little confused about the Disney structure now, but <laughs> I think they're now called 20th um, that we're trying to find directors for before we go out. Um, but right now, actually, I feel like it's the fun stage because I'm trying to figure out what I want to develop next. And in terms of the time management thing, I've actually learned I have a really hard time being on staff and developing at the same time. Um, I know most writers do that. I find it really difficult, especially like, you know, I was on a show where we regularly work through dinner. And so the idea of having to go home and then work on my pilot and spend all my weekends working on my pilot, I was, it was pretty miserable. I didn't want to live my life that way. So I fortunately don't have, you know, I'm I'm not putting kids through private school. So (laughs) I'm able to be like, okay, I'm going to take the next three months off and just focus on development, getting some projects off the ground. And, you know, if none of them goes, I'll take a staff job, you know, but um, I feel lucky to be able to do that and just focus mm-hmm. on development. Um, and because I love being in the research stage and the discovery stage, uh, probably a little too much. I could, <laughs> I could probably spend months like going down a hole and doing a lot. I, I actually really love research. So um, anytime I take on a project where it's a world I don't know anything about, I spend a lot of time doing research, but I really enjoy it. And I do think the project um, comes out better for it, you know? So I like giving myself that time. And so um, so that's kind of the stage I'm at now, but I'm trying to be better about not letting myself be in that stage for too long. At some point I have to be like, okay, let's give myself a deadline. Let's go out and pitch this, you know? Um, yeah. Because I had a pilot where I did spend like four months doing research. I mean, it did sell and get set up and all that and so that was great but that was probably more than enough time and I just got you know it was just too fun to read all these books so (laughs) I'm trying to be a little it's hard working from home to be honest with you I mean I started I mean I decided last year that I wanted to develop more and focus on that and not staff and only take really short staffing jobs when I want to like be around other writers because I love being around writers so I actually find working by myself really hard. So Seagal, I don't know how you do it. So once a year, I'm like, okay, I need a small staff job just so I could be around writers. But then the rest of the time I want to develop. And um, it was a learning curve to figure out that rhythm, you know? Um, 
I actually thought I would have more of a life because I could control my schedule. And yet I found when you're working from home, you could actually end up working all day. Um, and so I had to learn how to- Until you have kids. Yes, no, that's true, 100%, 100%. <laughs> and so I found I was working more actually working from home than um, less. I mean, the pandemic didn't help. I couldn't go anywhere. So I ended up like, I can't go to dinner with friends, so I might as well just work. So, I mean, I realized last year was an unusual year, but it was tricky to kind of come up with new habits and um, force myself to like be at my desk at a certain time and just focus on writing and then allow myself to have a real break and go, okay, you're done with writing for the day, you know? So um, it was tricky, but um, I feel like I got a lot of the kinks out of the way, like right before the pandemic. So when everyone else was learning to adjust to work from home, by that point, <laughs> I had sort sort of gotten it, you know, I had the whole yeah. home office set up and, it, you know, so I was ready. Um, but yeah, it did take me a while, I have to admit. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a learning curve. Um, let's, you, all of you mentioned um, development. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And the thing I'd love to hear about is like finding the the newness of a project. Um, you know, like um, Ron, you're working on Swiss Family Robinson. You know, why are you the guy? What do you bring to it? You know, I feel like we've known your voice now for 20, 25 years, um, and we have certain expectations of what you bring to series uh, and their high expectations and i wonder you know in approaching something like swiss family robinson what is expected of you to bring to it and what do you feel like you have to offer to a property like that um i think what i offer is i mean i love the the original movie and it was a part of my childhood it was something that i i passed on to my kids and showed it to them and it's it's always had sort of a a special place in my heart. And so I sort of bring my passion for it and my love of it, which I think is really important on any, on any show or any piece of development that you're, you know, you're bringing a passion for the material and that always sort of strikes a chord with, um, you know, the, the powers that be, they want, they want people that are passionate about it. They want, you know, people that are eager to dig into the work and that really have a, a vision of what it is. Um, I think what they're looking for is that, you know, they're, they're looking for something that's successful. <laughs> so hopefully, you know, that's, that's what they're looking to me to do is to make it successful. And they want it to be something that fits within, you know, um, the, the Disney pantheon, you know, then that's so, so in this particular case, it's just a melding of those, those two things. And I've been fortunate in that the, the vast majority of shows I've worked on, I've, I've had passion for it. In fact, I'm trying to think mm -hmm. there really was one that I didn't love, I, I tend to sort of fall in love with material or fall in love with shows. And once I'm in it, I'm kind of all in. And each show I think is probably the best thing I've ever written. And this is the best show I've ever been on. And I just sort of fall in love over and over again. And to me, that's part of the joy and part of the fun of, of uh, doing the job is there's a, always a freshness to it. It's like, wow, this is going to be amazing. And these characters and what we can do. And I get really excited. And I love sitting in the writer's room with the other writers and, so we all get excited and it's just there that sort you, of evergreen you, quality. Do you feel that way the whole way through? I feel that way on some basic level the whole way through. I mean, there's, you know, so much of the show uh, of what we do, as you know, is, is 
hand-to-hand combat. You know, there's a lot of fighting, there's a lot of arguing, there's a lot of struggle with budgets and notes and production realities and things that aren't going right. And, you know, there's, so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of stress that sort of makes, for me at least, um, the difficult part of the job. But I don't know that I've ever, I ever lose the passion for the material. I mean, I've, I remember right, probably the hardest one I ever did was a show called Carnival for HBO. And it was like my, my first uh, solo show running gig. And it was a very difficult show and bad relationship with the network, a difficult writer's room where half the writers hated the other half of the writers, which was an oh, extraordinary no. experience. I never want to repeat. And <laughs> I was really tired and and it was my first time at bat and there were days I just wanted to quit. And then I would literally watch dailies and it looked so beautiful. And I was so in love with what we were trying to do that it just always kind of picked me up and I could keep going and stick with it because I just loved the material. And as hard as it got, it never got to the point where I just couldn't, where it overwhelmed that that sense of of joy at what we were trying to create. That's so nice to hear. I mean, Sigal, the way you the way you ask that question, <laughs> do you tend to do you tend to lose interest or the passion that initially got you engaged in a project? Um, no, I mean, I I I also I always work out of passion, like great passion, great love. I only work for this for the sake of the the art. Truly, I mean, there's no other way here. I think I think that's part of the reason that there's a lot of. Um, great quality coming out of the country right now because in order to do a series you really have to kind of commit suicide over it It, it's not um but so during the writing process I think I go through a lot of uh uh, turbulence I mean I I could I could walk around the house certain days saying "I'm I'm a genius I'm a genius this is the best thing this is going to change the world and 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 i'm and i'm just i'm happy and i'm really fun to be around <laughs> and and then it can be you know the next day or a couple of day or a couple of hours after where i'm like this is this is this is this is terrible this is this is crap this is shit like what am i doing who's going to watch this this is it's not even based on some historic it's just uh you know stuff out of my imagination who's going to care and and I you know I've been writing for around you know 20 years already um even more and that you know I always go through that so I guess to I guess I'm at a at a stage right now where I kind of I'm not a, I'm not afraid of it anymore. I kind of work through it and I, I, um, I, I direct my, my projects as well. So that's also something that helps me, I think very much through the, the writing process. That's like, like, that's like the prize at the end of the, the loneliness and the four walls. It's the, you know, the, the present of, um, directing it at the end. But, um, so yeah, that's why I was, it, I was asking. And I loved yeah. Carnival, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, you're the one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was working on a... You haven't, on a, you haven't been on the internet in a long time. <laughs> I was working on a... On a I, I made a theater show back then called uh, uh, Freaks, which was inspired by, by Ta- Todd Browning's uh, oh, yeah. 
So I was working on Freaks back then, and then Carnival came out, and it was just like everything I loved, and it was it was beautiful. Yeah, it really was a it really was a beautiful show. I mean, I I still go through, I I go through periods where I feel like, man, I can't do this anymore. Or I'm writing, I'm in the middle of a script, and I feel like, have I lost the thread of what this script is? And I. I'm constantly going back to the beginning and rewriting the beginning and going back in and then trying to finish. So my beginnings are inevitably better than my endings because I've rewritten the beginning like 15 times and then the ending gets written <laughs> once too. and then you turn it in. You know? <laughs> but there's always that point where I just don't know if I can answer the bell on this, on this particular script. It's like, oh man, I thought this was going to be great. And now I'm here on page 34 and I don't even know if I can get 60 pages out of this stupid thing. It's like, what, what was I thinking? You know, And somehow... I just force myself to literally write the next word on the page is, is my trick. It's just write the, you know, and then there'll be something after the, and just keep writing another word until you get to a period and then just keep going. It's just like forcing yourself to keep writing. True. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we all, all go through it. Um, you know, it's, it's a little easier to contend with when you're on staff or even running with so because the train is running right you have those deadlines you have a room full of people ideally who can help you um and if not at least you know where that story is going um when you're working on your own it's a different it's a different animal um and lana you said you've, you've taken this past year to do more development and write more on your own do you find yourself faced with those moments and how do you push through yeah um what i've learned I have to do for me actually is sometimes that means I need to walk away from the project for a couple of days not walk away like quit but take time <laughs> away from it <laughs> um, and maybe either work on something else or sometimes like I'm when you're just so in the weeds of it you can't see the problems and what I've realized is even if I take a weekend off and go okay I'm gonna go see my family or I'm gonna read a book or I'm gonna focus my attention on this other project for two days and then come back to this you have a little bit more fresher eyes when you look at the script and suddenly you're like, oh, I see what the problem was, you know? So I just needed to step away for a little bit, you know? Um, that almost always seems to happen. And an annoying thing that still happens to me, which I haven't figured out how to fix is, you know, if you have a deadline and I, I always meet my deadlines and I get the script into the producers when I said I'm going to get it in. And after I send it in, it's like my brain switches like it relaxes a bit because I met my deadline I turned it in and the next day when I open up the script suddenly I see the problems that I didn't see when I was working on it or I actually usually yeah. what I do is I discover the fixes that I didn't quite figure out um, before I sent it in and then I spend that week fixing the script again and hoping I could catch the producers before they've read my draft and go I have a new draft you know but in that week <laughs> After I've turned in my script, I will have done more work on it than I had the previous three weeks, like when I was like agonizing over how to make these fixes, you know? So I, I have, I have, I have a solution for you. You do? What yes. Please tell me. <laughs> have somebody, give somebody you trust or adore or admire, uh, give, in, give them the, the, the draft to read. Yeah. And then, and then you'll have the same feeling after, you know, right after you gave them that to read, because, 
Yeah, because it's it's actually we see things differently. I think once you kind of read the material through through the, through a new person that's 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 reading it, and and for some reason it's easier to do when somebody is actually reading it. Yeah, and <laughs> and then and then I that'll help you like hand it in um, after like the effect. Yes. No, I agree. And I think, I mean, I love being a TV writer because you usually have that room full of writers, um, you know, and you learn from people who are better at the things that you're a little weaker at, you know, and I remember recently I had given, I had done what you said, Seagal, and I gave a friend my script because I couldn't seem to come up with a fix for one story point, even though I knew it should be fairly simple. So I wasn't sure why I was so stuck. And then she read it and we got on the phone and then I just started to talk and tell her, these are my issues and this is what I'm trying to figure out. And then I was fixing the problem as I was talking to her on the phone. And then she was like, okay, well, you know what you needed to do. I think you just needed someone to talk it through with. I'm like, you're right. I just, I just wanted to talk it through with someone. And she just sat and listened and nodded and was like, yep, I agree with that. You know, so um, it was, so again, I'm still learning what the process is for me and what works for me. Um, but um, I do... I mean, that was when I really missed having a writer's room is just having other smart writers around me that I could bat ideas around with, you know, so, um, but I am trying to find, I mean, I'm trying to, I have like a little group of writers I really trust. I just try not to inundate them with every draft that I'm doing so <laughs> <laughs> um, that I could turn to and go, okay, what do you, can you just read the scene? Tell me what you think, you know, but I love the collaborative process personally. So um Anytime I can bring yeah. friends in, into my projects, I find it so much more enjoyable. And of course I reciprocate when, when they have a project, I'm like, let me read it, I'll help you, you know? So I actually really love that process. Our writing changes um, as we, the more we do it, right? It evolves, um, whether it's in the process or whether it's in our interests. And I wonder um, how is over the, you know, speak to, if you can, the, the things that we know you from, but like you've written in, in whether it's the same genre or different genres or subject matter, um, or if it's just in finding new ways of engaging with material. And I'm curious to hear from each of your perspectives, how has your writing changed over the course of your career in doing this? That's a hard one. I'm not sure. Um, I know I spend more time thinking about character than I probably did mm. at the outset of my career. When I started at Star Trek, you know, it was basically just trying to figure out how to construct plot and how to, you know, make structure work. And it was a lot of years just learning structure. And TV is very, very structure, structurally oriented. But there was an emphasis um, in the show about characters and whose show is this? And well, this is a Wharf show. And what are we saying about Wharf? Or this is a Picard show and, and so on. And so you were sort of starting from a place of character. But as time has gone on, you started, I, I guess I started to realize the character is the structure on some level, that you're really telling stories about these people and the structure is sort of a way to allow the audience to experience the character instead of the other way around. And so I, 
I I don't know how my writing per se has changed. It's an interesting question. I've, I haven't gone back and reread anything I've written probably ever. <laughs> really, there's very little. I, I, there's really very little that I've written that I ever go back and reread. Like I might every once in a while look at an old episode of something just out of curiosity, or maybe you know one of my kids wants to see it, or or, or I'm prepping to do something on some anniversary and. I, I almost have no sense memory of ever writing it. I'll watch it and I'll go, God, did I really write this? Maybe somebody else did a pass on this scene and I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> and so like what I do currently is so very much like in the moment, I, I guess I don't have a sense of what the continuum is of the evolution of my, my own, my own writing is, yeah, it's an interesting question that I, that I don't have an answer to. Yeah. I mean, I think we so rarely look at our work as a whole. Right. And and consider that evolution or that journey. Um, but from the outside, you know, looking at I mean, Ron, you're you're easy to talk about with this because we've known you as a showrunner. And, you know, I've been doing this podcast for almost 10 years and we've had a lot of Star Trek writers who knew you then and who, you know, learned from you then. Um, I was thinking recently about the uh, Battlestar Galactica um podcast that you used to do was oh, yeah. it a podcast or was it the uh, commentary tracks or whatever and like it was a podcast yeah, yeah. in fact the first one i did um, i remember listening... saying this is a podcast i don't quite know what that means but i'm doing something <laughs> called a podcast <laughs> yeah I, and i think for so many of us it was like a great democratizing thing for like here's how tv is made you can do this too here's how the writing process goes and, and Sigal, a, a similar question, like you've been at this for 20 years, do you have to think about how you approach a project or are you able to just sort of jump in and trust that it's going to happen? Um, my arc uh, is a bit different. I I mean, there, there's a very, I started with, with um, like the first thing I wrote that actually happened was a, was a children's play. And so I, I did two children's plays that I uh, directed. And then I, I was, I did uh, a comedy in theater and I moved from that to, to uh, telenovelas. I did three of Israel's uh, most uh, famous telenovelas, which, which was the most amazing writing school I could probably get here because it was uh, 120 episodes per telenovela. Um, and, and I did have, that was the closest things, thing to a, to a writer's room because I did have writers. I mean, we did not sit in the same room, but uh, I had diff writers who I would uh, send treatments and they would write the episode and I would, and so that was like a, I was like a little factory with no life for those years. And I then went, I did the, I went into television, like a dramedy. That was the X list was, which was the first uh, kind of television show I, I directed, which was a certain kind of, it was a, like a drama comedy. And then I, um, Irreversible was like a completely different thing that I wanted to try which was in a, in a Larry David Curb kind of style, which uh, the, the episodes were written completely, but the actors didn't get, uh, 
scripts. They didn't get dialogue. It was just, um, I think we were talking about freaks before. So I think um, in that it was a theater show with no words. There were not no words during this hour and a half uh, hour uh, and a half freak show. And I think that was like also the best kind of writing writing school because you had to to know specifically what happens in a scene so that you can explain to the actors what they want from each other. Cause it wasn't pantomime either. It was all, um, uh, what's the word in English? Um, <laughs> what's the word in Hebrew? Peula. Um, wait, uh, it's going to take me time to, um, behavior. To, no, uh, uh, action. Like, oh, action. Like- it's you know you have to is it was just actions like people doing specific actions and acting and reacting to each other so 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 that was actually the most amazing tool doing irreversible because you know that was how i built the the scenes that's how they were were written like there's a complete script with mm. with all these stories and exactly what happens in between and but and you know specifically what to tell the actors that they need from each other so that the the so that it can ha- happen and it, it took time to find this technique but it was it was pretty remarkable and it was very fun on set directing this style too and mm-hmm. now losing alice is is a neo noir erotic psychological thriller so if we take it from the the children's play um, about you know these uh, three kids who who kidnap a grand a grandma because they don't have one with a banana, so it's I, I think it's quite a <laughs> quite a span is that word yeah um, it is I I sort of going back to one of my original questions like that's such a breadth of types of storytelling um where are you in it you know if someone were to look at this body of work what could they say about your interests or your passions i think i always kind of like to um um challenge challenge myself and i mean all the i the the children's play plays as well or freaks or all the things uh, for instance had uh, a visual style that I love very much that I think reached its peak in losing Alice and um, I I love comedy as much as I love uh, uh, dark dark uh, dark drama or thrillers um I guess it. I guess it's it's um, it's a certain place that you're at. It's a certain uh, thing you want to explore. Kind of jumping into something. I, I guess it's the feeling of of unknown water in in a in a in a way like dealing with. Because also, when I look back, I mean, going out to shoot <laughs> uh, thirteen episodes in Israel, which is like two days an episode for, for a comedy like irreversible with no scripts 
it's like it's 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 suicide and <laughs> so i mean there are scripts but like no the you know you're you're working yeah. with actors who who have no idea what they're going to shoot and so i think so i think that's the thing it's kind of always going to another place that's interesting or somewhere I feel that I want to explore and that I'm not um, familiar. And it's not a safe, I don't like, I guess, being in a safe place. I guess that's the motivation. Yeah, I think, I think that, and that keeps it exciting too. Um, and I think, you know, for fans of your work, that's going to make us excited to see what you do next. Um, I actually Lana, in I talking have about seen development in my mind. Oh, sorry. Um, I was just about Go to ahead. say, I feel like I have seen an improvement in my writing over, I'm able to see it because on one hand, sometimes I wonder what it must be like to have been on Grey's Anatomy for 15 years and never have to look for a job, <laughs> but that has not been my career. And I have been <laughs> on a lot of shows, but the benefit of that is I've got to learn from a lot of um, different talented writers and showrunners and I feel like every time I'm on a show I take something away from that show that helps me become a better writer producer um so and I see that in my pilot scripts like oh I picked this up like actually just recently somebody was mentioning that they liked the way I wrote action um an executive who had just read me and I know I was on Arrow the first season and that was a show where not every show is like that but like this, but Arrow in particular, you were you had to mimic the showrunner's style of writing, you know, and and so I really studied the way Mark Guggenheim wrote his action scenes, and like mm. where does he put his dashes? How does he break it up? You know, like really studied it, and um, so I can say Mark Guggenheim taught me how to write action, um, and because I really analyzed and I thought he wrote it. He wrote action so well, it was so fun. It was always so emotional and it made the script read so fast. And so, and like, and I was on, on four weddings and a funeral. I was the drama writer on staff full of comedy writers. I was brought in to be the drama writer. Um, and it was my first time being in a comedy room. And um, I saw the way that they really interrogate dialogue. They, as a staff, we were constantly acting out the dialogue and until the dialogue was as smart and sharp and concise as it could be, like constantly editing it. And I'd never worked on a show that did that. I mean, I've never worked on a drama show where the writer sat, sat around and read dialogue out loud, you know? So mm. now I do that, you know, in my home, I'll read out the dialogue to make sure, okay, does this sound natural? Does it not sound natural, you know? Um, so like with every show, I feel like I pick up something, something that the, um, I learned from other writers. And I think, oh, I want to steal that. That's great, you know? So um, I've realized it's been a benefit to have worked on so many different shows and have learned different styles. And even with certain, like with showrunners, I, I'll think, oh, one day I'm an, if I'm a showrunner, I want to do that too. Because mm -hmm. I really like that the showrunner does X, Y, Z, you know? So um, so I have actually, I have seen an improvement. Yeah, so it's a little That's painful great. if I ever have to go back to read a, a pilot I wrote when I first started out. <laughs> So, yeah. And Ron, I want to pick up on um, something you mentioned before, which is um, coming off of Carnival, which was, you know, not the experience you wanted it to be, was Battlestar the next show that you ran? And how did you hedge against 
falling into the traps that you had previously? Um, yeah, they, they were very different experiences. Uh, I don't know. Battlestar just had, a, a, you know, a great quality to it from the, from the get go. You know, I was able to, I put the writing staff together, um, from the beginning on Battlestar. And whereas in Carnival, it was, there was a, that Henry Bramel was going to run the show. So he had assembled the writer's room, including me on Carnival. Then he left the show and then they asked me to run it. So I sort of inherited it as a staff and uh, didn't realize that, you know, a lot of these people were not going to get along. And when I put the Battlestar staff together, I just sort of had that experience in mind. And I want to make sure, okay, chemistry in a room is very important, which was something I had kind of taken for granted all those years at Star Trek is all the Star Trek writing staffs um, were really wonderful experiences. Like we really bonded and they were really great. And, you know, I, I was kind of surprised to encounter a room that didn't run like that. So Battlestar, it was just like, oh, okay, let's not, let's just be careful make sure that everyone is going to play together really nice and uh, like that. But the show running experience was very different. You know, the budget was much smaller than Carnival. Uh, it was shooting in Vancouver as opposed to Southern California and so everything was very different uh, going into uh, Battlestar. And, but I had taken, you know, I had 10 years at Trek and as a writer producer. So I knew television production pretty well. And I had had, you know, a test of fire at Carnival when things aren't going well and all the stresses that, that could come along with the job. But then Battlestar, I had a specific idea of what we could accomplish. And people really responded to the miniseries uh, script and sort of what the concept was. And so there was a, a, a lot of goodwill, like people that came to the project were excited about coming onto the project and people were really sort of like, wow, this could be really something special. And we just, I, I tried to just inculcate that feeling of we're all doing something special. Maybe no one else out there will watch this. No, maybe this will fall on its face, but we all kind of believe. And if we all believe this, this thing could be really something, something unique. And so I just tried to keep that spirit going and to really kind of, you know, encourage television as a team sport and that we're all in this together and we're all creating this, this amazing um, project. And let's just try to bring our A game like every single day. And I just found that, um, people really do take their cues from the the people at the top and that, you know, the, the spirit that we tried to approach the production with really sort of generated out through the entire production so that we were all sort of on the same team and all really believing very strongly in what we were doing. And it was an amazing experience. They were an amazing uh, group of people that I was, I was fortunate enough to, to work with on that, on that production. And, and I think it comes through in the product too. I mean, you know, there's there's clearly passion behind it. And I think we've seen that in all the stuff you worked on. I think we've seen that in, in the stuff all of you have worked on. Um, I do wonder always, like, is that replicable? You know, when you approach something like uh, For All Mankind, are you building your room in the same way? Um, are you, how are you conveying the target to your writers, um, obviously season two is a different thing that you've had the one season behind you, but like starting out on that new show, um, how are you making it clear the, the mission statement of this show? Well, it, it, the, common, the common point is that in each of the experiences, I had a specific idea of what I wanted to do. Here's what I want to do with, with uh, Battlestar. Here's what I want to do with Outlander. Here's what I want to do with Mankind. 
uh, I learned, I kind of taught myself, okay, don't try to replicate what went before. I'm never going to recreate what we did at Battlestar. So don't chase that. That's like a, that's a mirage. And if you try to chase that, you're going to keep failing. You had to sort of approach each one of these as its own unique thing. There were, but the, the philosophy of how we conduct ourselves, you know, how we make the show, I've tried to make that consistent. You know, at the beginning of every writer's room, at the beginning, the first production meeting, I always talk to everybody and say, okay, look, you know, my job in the writer's room is as the showrunner is to be first among equals. You know, we're all writers here together. We're all equals. My job is to help to pull the best idea out of this room. And there's no bad ideas. We can all chip in and I expect you to argue with me. I expect it's all to sort of debate and I expect comradeship and I expect good fellowship. And we're just here to do the best work that we can. And on the production level, we're trying, you know, the department heads are like the officers of the ship and we all have to take care of our crew and we, the ship has to, you know, pull together and we all have to like have mission to, to accomplish. But we, you know, we have to be generous in spirit to the people that work for us. And, you know, you can come yell at me, but don't yell at your assistant. You know, you have to, you have to have a certain idea and philosophy of how we're running the show. And then we start talking about the creative and that's common. And that's something I try to take from show to show, but the creative of each show is really different. So you try to build each writer's room differently. You try to build each cast differently because you're not trying to replicate um, a success you had before or a great creative experience you had before, because I just think that's an exercise in futility. But what you, you can try to have the same kind of, um, philosophical basis of how you're going to approach the material, how you're going to accomplish what you're going to accomplish. But, you know, you look at everything creatively from its own unique perspective. The requirements of For All Mankind are fundamentally different than the requirements of Outlander are fundamentally different than the requirements of Battlestar Galactica. They are different creative ideas and they're different sort of projects that require you to use different muscles in order in order to achieve them. So it's, it's sort of understanding, you know, the, the, those differences is, is sort of what I've learned over time and trying to sort of, you know, make everything unique, but try to uh, approach it in the, in the same kind of way. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to just briefly ask, um, before we wrap up, Lana, you were talking about some of these rooms that you've been in and taking um, good practices from good showrunners. Um, what are some of those? What are things you would recommend? Really, the first one that popped to mind is kind of an unusual one, um, but I really appreciated it. And I've never been on a, a show that's done it since, which is, you know, Ron mentioned that first year shows are the hardest and they are, <laughs> especially the first, I would say, five episodes when everyone's still figuring out what the show is, including the studio and the network. And I remember I was on a show called The Playboy Club on NBC. And our showrunner had the entire writing staff listen in on the notes calls um for every episode in the beginning and I'd never been on a show that did that and still haven't that's the only show and I found it so helpful because it made so because the writers were then all on the same page about what was working or not working according to the studio and network versus like this game of telephone or you know shows where the showrunners keep all the information but the writing staff has no clue that we're still breaking story in the direction the network the network doesn't want us to go you know um, so I found that really helpful. And I thought, you know, I would want to do that if I'm a showrunner one day is to have all the writers on the notes calls um, and not just the showrunner and not just the writer of that episode. So that was something simple. And then um, 
this wouldn't work on every show, but I want to take the spirit of this, which is um, I was on, I've been on a couple of Sean Ryan shows and his rooms are always, what I find interesting on a writing staff is when the showrunner is not in the room, the energy is one thing. The showrunner comes into the room to hear what we've been working on and the energy completely shifts, you know, and I always found that a little frustrating, you know, it's like everyone's so scared now that the showrunner's in the room to pitch their ideas or it gets a little bit more competitive, you know, and um, I was so, I was, I noticed that Sean's rooms were not like that, you know, he really allowed the writers to pitch bad ideas, you know, and it's okay. And I realized it's because he very rarely says no. What he does is he sits there and he listens to all the writers pitch ideas. I mean, and he's so quiet that once I thought, I don't even think he's paying attention because he was like on his phone, you know? And I'm like, is he even listening to us? But he'd let the room just talk and talk and talk for a bit. And then he'll look up and he's like, okay, um, I really liked idea A that you guys talked about. And I also liked B. So why don't you guys work on those two? And then he'll leave. And I realized he didn't sit there and reject pitch after pitch after pitch the way a lot of showrunners do. You know, you'll pitch an idea and then you look at the showrunner and he'll be like, no. And then somebody else will pitch an idea and then look at the showrunner and he'll be like, no, you know, and that could get really demoralized. And um, I thought it was really interesting that that wasn't the way Sean worked. Um, and so it created this free flowing conversation because the writers were debating with each other, almost as if the showrunner wasn't in the room and pitching out a whole bunch of ideas. And then when Sean finally speaks, it's just to tell us what he liked. He's not there to tell us what he didn't like, you know? Um, mm. And I thought that was really wonderful. It created a really safe, creative environment. Um, yeah, and, that's really cool. That's really yeah. interesting. I, I'm fascinated by the, I got to go back for a second. Was the <laughs> network aware that you were all on the notes call? <laughs> to be honest with you, I have no idea. Because <laughs> we were muted. The only people who talked was the showrunner. So I'm not sure if the studio network knew we were all on the call. Wow. We, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm trying to put that through my brain. Because <laughs> there's, I, I, it is, I mean, it's not like that's an illegitimate way to go. Right. Uh, I just, I, it never occurred to me to do that because on some level, I try to protect the writers from what right. the network says and try to soften it and go in and try to not demoralize them and try to go, okay, right. I don't need to go in and tell them I just had this huge fight about this, this scene or about this character or, you know, have a, a whole, I, I just kind of go in and say, okay, this is where we ended up and this is what we're going to do. And this, and I try to give them an honest, I try to be honest with them about what they liked and what they didn't like, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm maybe I'm too protective of the writers. Maybe they're maybe they're tougher than I, I think, and they could listen in on some of those calls. Maybe it depends on the network too. No, true. And actually, on, on I the notes, the, I thought one thing that came one of the reasons why I like that approach personally. I mean, personally, I was a staff writer at the time, so for me, it was really fascinating and eye opening to to hear that exchange and see what it is that network wanted. But another thing that came out of it that I thought was helpful was we'd all hear the notes. And then when we hang up, we would discuss them. And it was interesting to see that people had different ideas of what they thought the note meant, you know? Um, yeah. And 
Um, and sometimes the showrunner was wrong. He thought he heard one thing and then another writer was like, I don't think that's what they meant, you know? And then we would discuss it. And then the showrunner would call back and go, hey, is this what you meant? And they said, oh yeah. And the original huh. direction that we were gonna go would have completely blown up the episode when really the network was actually asking for a more surgical fix or a simple fix, you know, um, that one of the writers was like, I think what they were saying is this, you know? so. Even the, you know, even with writers with a ton of experience, sometimes you hear the note differently or you don't understand the spirit of the note and somebody might just speak that executive's language, <laughs> you know? No, that's so, fair. That's that's yeah. really interesting because I definitely have run into that where sometimes I hear the note and my first reaction is, oh my God, that just blew the whole show up. Right. And so I, <laughs> I put on armor and I'm ready to just go go to war on this thing. And then someone else will say something or one of the other producers is on the line and It'll, or I'll dig a little deeper and I'll realize, yeah, they said, they said it in an awkward way or in a right. way that, you know, they're, they don't realize that they're basically blowing up the show by saying that. And, but the note behind the note, as we say, is this other thing that is actually right. much more easily fixed. Right. Exactly. I, I'm still trying to learn that is not to, not to just react because here's here's the note that I hate and try to like okay but what do they really mean they, they I have can't that. they can't mean that you know right I have that in everyday life not not just in front of the network not just with people just they, I, <laughs> thinking they mean something and I'm like ah, ah. yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So those were, I mean, those are just like the first couple ones that popped into my head, but yeah, I do feel like I learn from every show. I'm those on are great. And I try to file it away and, and even on set, you know, cause what is interesting is writers are thrown onto set and no one tells you what your role is, what you're supposed to do, how you could be effective on set as the writer. You're just kind of thrown into the fire, you know? And, um, I've, I mean, this is more my personality, but I realize it's also helped me is if I don't know, and I've actually gotten opposite advice, but for me, this works. If I don't know the answer, I will admit I don't know, and I will ask for their opinion. Whereas other people have said, don't ever act like you don't know something, <laughs> you know? But for me, like that has always worked, you know, in my favor. And like, I remember like when I was on set for an, a timeless episode, um, in Vancouver and I landed. And the first thing the line producer said to me was your episode is $500,000 over budget. And I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and so we had to sit down and figure out how to get it down to scale. And, um, they were pitching me fixes. That was, I knew we can't do, I was like, that ruins the story. I can't do that. You know, I can't take out Houdini's big, so a simple explanation is um, it was an episode with Houdini and he had the magic trick where he's in that water case and he has to get out of it. I forget what it's called, the tank, the water tank. And they wanted to get rid of that whole scene. And I was like, I can't do that. This is when we meet Houdini. Like I can't get, I was like, what is the problem? Why the scene is very simple, but it's still a full day's work. Like, what is the issue, you know? And, um, you know, I finally was like, what would help, you know? And they were like, anything with water is going to, is going to take too much time. And I'm like, so it's just the water. If I change the magic trick, that's going to be okay. And they're like, yeah, because they're, and they're, they were saying, get rid of the scene, cut the scene. <laughs> so it took me asking them, how can I help you? What would help, you know, for finally get the answer. It's the water. That's the problem, not the scene. And I'm like, oh, I'll just change the magic trick, <laughs> you know? And so, um, so I've just kind of learned to be like, 
to say, to admit like, you know, how can I help? Like, you know, what do you need me to fix? And I'll hear it and I'm like, and I'll say, okay, I can't do this, but what if I do that? You know, versus I know everything. We just need to keep the scene. You guys need to make it work, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, and that has worked for me, even though I've been advised not to do that and not to admit that you don't know something. But um, I think that's the only way I learned too. And, you know, I'm, I don't work crew. So how I'm not going to pretend like I know more than the production designer and the camera guy about how to do their job, you know? So um, I have no problems asking them for their opinion, you know, like, what would you do? What do you think is best? And like hearing their thoughts, you know, and then yeah. I've, I've saw that that earns me a lot of goodwill. Like I get along really well with crew because I think they know I respect what they do and I always thank them and I'm collaborative okay. and I'm not the writer who comes on set and says it has to be my way, you know, um, yeah. I want to work with you to get this to be the best episode ever. So um, tell me how I can be of help. Yeah, and I think, you know, so it's, it's important to remember, you know, top to bottom, this is a collaborative medium. You know, we're not, you know, painters on canvas doing it by yourself, novelists doing it by yourself. This is, everyone has a voice in this process and, and those voices are valuable to make something good. Um, we're going to, we need to wrap up. Uh, I don't want to keep you all too long. Um, I want to make sure that we get the plugs. Um, uh, For All Mankind, season two starts on the 18th of February. Is that correct? Uh, 19th, February 19th, 19th yeah. 19th. Um, and is there anything you can tell us about this new season? Anything to get people uh, warmed up? Well, uh, part of the concept of the show is that each season we jump ahead in time pretty significantly. So season one uh, started in 1969 and ended in 1974. And Season two jumps to 1983. So the space program has now expanded and it is caught up in the Cold War between the US and the USSR. Ronald Reagan is president. And uh, the second season has a much more military, militarized, militarization of space is a recurrent theme. And the characters have changed in a lot of ways in the, the passage of 10 years. And it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's, a, it's a very different season than uh, season one. And uh, season three will be yet again a, a different show. That's, that's exciting. It's exciting as a viewer, uh, and I, I imagine it's uh, exciting as a creator. And then Seagal, we got um, Losing Alice. Uh, for folks who have not yet tuned in, we're on the penultimate episode as of this podcast release, um, so folks can catch up. Um, is there anything you want to... Do you want to pitch the show for people who haven't seen it? Um, so Losing Alice is a, it's an eight-episode a neo-noir psychological erotic thriller and the first three episodes are are out and then there's from starting friday there's another episode every friday uh it, it's kind of like a movie where the first three episodes are kind of the first act and then four to six are the second act and seven and eight are the third and it, it's it's about a 48 year old female filmmaker who meets a young uh, screenwriter who's a femme fatale and she kind of uh, sparks something that she thought was was dead inside her already and um, she becomes they become obsessed with each other and it's it's about art and creativity and age and 
it's about a lot of things. But what I want to say is you should watch it. And even though you think you'll know where it's going at the end of episode three, maybe, um, you have no idea. <laughs> and it just gets uh, <laughs> okay. really wilder and crazier. And it, it becomes like this puzzle and mystery um, that you're trying to solve along the way um, dealing with um, what it is for an artist to kind of to make his art and, and the price you have to pay for doing that. If you want to do it, like if you want to keep the water in the aquarium scene, like what it takes to. Um. <laughs> but I love too. I mean, I'll say this for both of your shows. Like it's so exciting that while, while, you know, we have these shows about these great characters who are fascinating. These, these are also shows about big, big ideas. Um, and that hasn't always been easy to get on screen. And I feel like now with more outlets and outlets taking bigger risks, um, we can get some shows that are actually about something. And it's, it, you know, they feel substantial. And, and both of these shows uh, feel that way and are rewarding watches for that. Um, we'll end as we always do by asking you what you're watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your friends, your loved ones, your rooms? And Lana, let's start with you. Actually, I've been watching a lot of Korean dramas lately. <laughs> um, and they're all on Netflix well, like now, what? which is so um, I just watched Startup, which I thought was so great. Um, and there's just such a variety of genres that, and I just feel like what they're doing is so cutting edge over there with their storytelling. Um, cause they don't fit into one genre, you know, um, like every couple of episodes, suddenly your romantic comedy turns into a thriller, turns into a family drama, turns into a murder mystery, <laughs> and it, it just keeps you on your toes. And I think there's just so much talent in Korea right now. It's, ex it's really exciting to see. And I'm so glad that, um, Netflix, I think, just announced they're pouring a lot of more money into Netflix Korea. So we're going to get so much more content. And so it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I love The Kingdom. Do you watch The Kingdom? Yes. yes oh, my God. So great. Such a great show. <laughs> it's so fun. Oh, wow. I'll take That's The Kingdom great. out. Yeah. Hey, God, what are you watching these days? Um, I actually just started. Uh, I saw two episodes of um, Let's Pretend It's a City. Uh, the documentary of Fran Leibowitz that Martin Scorsese directed, and I'm in love with her. <laughs> She's so brilliant, this woman. Um, and there's this one remarkable scene in the second episode where she's talking with Spike Lee and they're talking about art. And he asks her, you know, who's... What if if Michael Jordan as a, as a as a basketball player is less than you know Picasso and and you know without even blinking she goes yes because you don't are you watching basketball after he's dead uh, after when when uh, no but will you enjoy Picasso uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of beautiful insights there oh that's so interesting. It is. Are there, are there uh, Israeli shows that we might not be aware of that we should check out? Uh, the, the last Israeli show here that was like an amazing, enormous hit 
which um, is called rehearsals. In Hebrew, it's chazarot, which is a uh, comedy about the uh, behind the the behind the scenes of a of a theater, and it's a romant romantic co- comedy, beautifully done and just so funny and and amazing and probably will find its way to uh, hopefully to a bigger audience. Well, that sounds fun. Great. And Ron, what are you watching? Uh, I've just discovered a show called Lodge 49, which is on AMC, which is this crazy mashup of sort of Big Lebowski and Inherent Vice. (laughs) I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a beach bum who's played by, um, I think Wyatt Russell is his name. His Kurt Russell's and uh, Goldie Hawn's son. It plays this beach bum in Southern California who, by various reasons, gets involved with this, this lodge, like a Masonic lodge called Lodge 49 in Long Beach, California. And it's just got it's, – it's a weird, loose-limbed kind of strange show with a lot of fascinating characters. And the first couple episodes, you're wondering what this is all about and where. And then by the third one, it starts to <laughs> sort of kick in, and now I'm kind of obsessed with it and – I think there's two seasons and I, I hope they get a, a third. I haven't heard of, or haven't looked to see if they're getting a third season or not. Yeah, it's, it's a great, and I think this is something that TV gets to do so well now is like you get to play with tone and you get to have these really specific tones. Um, and that's a great example of it. I love what they're doing on that show. Uh, thank you all so much for chatting today. This has been instructive, enlightening, and a lot of fun. It was great to meet you all. Come back soon. Nice to yep. meet you guys. Thank you. Great to meet you all. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.